Well, I, I'm working at the Eno Meteorological Institute and have a little accident, turn into ice, and suddenly I'm part of the Justice League. It's uh, quite a career change. We all need heroes in our lives. Sometimes we find them in the most unlikely places. Meanwhile, in the 1997 Justice League of America TV pilot. Hello, and welcome to the Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. This is another of our Meanwhile episodes. Now, these Meanwhile installments break from the usual numbered issues to provide a chance to look at the JLI outside of the ongoing monthly series. And believe me, folks, this is a very special episode. And I do mean like 1980s air quotes on that one. My name is Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but you know how this works. I have brought along some friends, and I brought a bunch of them this time. My three co-hosts today have all willingly subjected themselves to one of the most notorious superhero TV pilots of all time. And one of these co-hosts is a returning guest to the JLI podcast. Another is a big fan of a particularly stretchy character, but sadly not elongated, man. And my final co-host is my podcasting life partner making his debut on this show. Folks, please help me welcome Chris Franklin, Max Romero, and Rob Kelly. Welcome to the Embassy, guys. Thanks for being here. Hello. Thanks for having us. Chris, you've been here before. You know how the Embassy works. You can help show the guys around. Yeah, sure. I'll show them which teleporter tube not to use. Yeah, not a good idea. (laughs) No, show that one to Rob. That would be appreciated. Okay. (laughs) Max, sadly, plastic man, not elongated man, where did you go wrong in life? Um, Let's see. By not insisting plastic man be in the JLA earlier, (laughs) I think. (laughs) Oh, man. You know, folks, if you don't know, during the Fire and Water Summer Sampler we did a year or two ago, Max and I sat down and had a little mini debate on Plastic Man versus Elongated Man, and I think I came out on top. I think I did. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Also, for some of you, this may be your very first time you have ever heard myself and Rob Kelly podcast together. Rob and I have been doing this for how many years, sir? Oh, I think we're nine at this point. Something like around there, yeah. Yes, he is my podcasting partner, and this is the very first time he's ever appeared on this show, even though the show's been going for four years strong. And technically, Rob, by the way, this doesn't even count because it's not a real issued one. It's a meanwhile episode. So as far as I'm concerned, you're still not on the show. You have done your best to keep me off JLI and it took the generous Patreon supporters to get me on. So I thank you all for your support because otherwise without your greenbacks, I would not be doing this. (laughs) We should probably explain what Rob's talking about there, folks. Yes, this episode where we're going to talk about the Justice League of America failed TV pilot from 1997 is entirely your fault, people. You at home, you take the blame for this. All the people here have lost one hour and 21 minutes of their lives because of you. And the way that works is we started a Patreon last year because the expenses of running the Fire and Water Podcast Network were adding up, quite frankly. So when we launched the Patreon, we set up certain goals as benchmarks so that when we reached those levels, we would have sort of a reward. This isn't exactly a reward, folks. But anyway, it's an achievement at the very least. And we said if we reach a certain level, we would do an episode covering the JLI TV pilot. I thought we would never reach that amount. But unfortunately, thanks to your help, we have. So if you want to know more about our Patreon, 
Patreon, please go out to our website, which is patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and there you can get a chance to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and it's really the best way to show your appreciation for shows such as the JLI Podcast. And at certain levels, you'll get recognized on your show of choice. For example, the following people help support the JLI Podcast. So really, if you want to point the finger, point the finger at these guys especially. Our thanks and shaming to Bill Beer, Christopher Lewis, Devin Clancy, George William, Martin Gray, Maxwell Traver, Rudy Castillo, Sean Ross, Tim Price, John Ross Haynes, David Ace Gutierrez, and Gord Tolton. Thank you so much, and curse you, curse you all. Ah, yes, Justice League America, TV pilot from 1997. So CBS commissions this thing, right? So guys, what what do you think? Why on earth did CBS think this was a good idea? Not everyone jumping at once. Right. <laughs> Let's see, the problem, Shaggy, is that you said, what made CBS think this was a good idea? <laughs> Uh, CBS looked at how much the 90s Flash TV series, which was fantastic, cost and said, hey, we can do that a lot cheaper and a lot crappier. (laughs) (laughs) It may have been what they were thinking. I don't know. They may have looked at the popularity of the superhero genre and decided it was time for this show. I'm not really sure. One commentary I've seen a lot of is that people said this pilot clearly was trying to bank on the popularity of the Friends TV show. Mm -hmm. When I first heard that, I was like, no. But then when I rewatched with that in my brain, oh my gosh, I totally see it. This is absolutely an attempt, an attempt, that's the key word, to make friends with superpowers. It really is. Yeah, that's what I was actually going to say, is that I'm betting that's how it got pitched, was somebody said, this is going to be like Friends with some X-Men mixed in, and that's our show. And they're going to be like, who can we get the rights to? How about these characters all right let's do that i think once you hear that comparison you can't help but see the uh compared the one-to-one comparisons of the friends characters and these justice league characters absolutely and you know at the time you've got shows like seinfeld and all these other ones on the air and the whole office comedy setting was very popular in sitcoms and so they look at justice league international which is an office comedy they clearly based on that rumor is and i can't i can't necessarily validate this right now i can't put my fingers on it but i've heard that the people that put together the pilot actually sat down with jmd mateus and keith giff and talked about what was it that made their series special. And then they went off and created this, which those things don't really connect very well. But, uh, <laughs> and if you haven't seen it, folks, it is available to watch online over at Daily Motion. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can subject yourself to this as well, and you'll thank us for it later. Now, this thing is, we're just going to pull the band-aid off up front, because normally we talk about finding our joy and stuff, but folks, this thing is so bad, it never aired in the U.S., and was relegated to basically illegal VHS and DVD copies at comic book conventions for years years. So uh, I, I have an old VHS copy. Chris, I think you mentioned you have a copy as well. Is that right? Right. Yes. Yes. I've had this uh, a bootleg of this for quite some time. Yes. And then I got another copy more recently from our good friend, Zumi Kanori, who's no longer with us. So this is this is a treasured possession of mine. He recorded the pilot when it aired on HBO Asia. Uh, he recorded it on PAL and ripped a copy of it and sent it to me uh, on a disc. And let me tell you, the quality of this one is a lot better than the one on Daily Motion. So those incredible costumes and special effects we're going to be talking about are even crisper and clearer on the version I have. So that's really fortunate for me. Thanks, Zoom. So <laughs> I actually do appreciate that. Zoom. Folks, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your thoughts on the JLI pilot. I call it JLI pilot. It's really the JLA pilot, but I still, anyway, we're, we're, I'm still going to call it the JLI pilot because that's really what it was. I've already seen some reaction from people online about different bits here and there. People definitely have 
a passion about this thing. So go out, use our hashtag, which is FW Podcast. You can tag us at JLI Podcast. And we really want to involve you guys because it's all about building a community of JLI fans. Well, really about the, around the comic, not around this horrible, atrocious pilot. But please, I want to hear your thoughts. Now, to set the stage, I do think we need to sort of put you in the picture. 1997, right? To me, it doesn't feel that long ago, but clearly it is a very long time ago. When they, this pilot was produced, superhero television and movies were sort of in a weird place. You know, if you look at 1997, the Flash TV series that Chris just mentioned a little bit ago had ended five years before this. The Superboy TV series had ended four years before this. Lois and Clark were still, was still on the air, but they were wrapping up their final season. Now, also to put you in the picture of how 1997 treated its superheroes, that same year we saw in the, in the theater the Batman and Robin film. Yes, that's the one with Schwarzenegger. And also the Steel theatrical film came out. I'm sorry, Michael Bailey, no matter what you say, no matter how, how you're going to defend it, it's not a good movie. I paid to see both on the big screen. <laughs> I worked for a movie theater at the time, so I saw them both for free and still wanted my money back. So, <laughs> so 1997 was pretty much the end of mainstream live-action superheroes. If you look at this, I, I, I spent a lot of time digging through and seeing what was going on with mainstream superhero stuff. You know, And I'm not talking about your, your small press, like Dark Horse and Image and all that stuff, but really DC and Marvel. And there was a big boom that started in 1989, and it pretty much collapses eight years later in 1997, the same year this pilot comes out. And, and live-action superheroes, we get like a relaunch a few years later, about um, four or five years later, in 2001-2002, with the Smallville TV series and then the Spider-Man theatrical film. That really kicked off a new resurgence in live-action superhero stuff that really, if you if you map it out, it's still continuing today because it goes up through 2008 and then the Marvel movies take over and there hasn't missed a beat since. So it sounds like to me that this pilot is so bad in 1997 that it actually managed to destroy and kill the superhero live-action genre for the only period of time in the 30 years that they've been able to kill that genre. And I think it falls on this pilot. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe it's more about Batman and Robin and Steel. But I think we should blame the pilot. (laughs) And it was that bad without anybody ever seeing it. That's why (laughs) people just feel it in the ether. (laughs) You know, but this isn't like the first time that DC generated pilots for their properties or Warner Brothers or whoever took a DC property, made a pilot that nobody ever saw. I mean, because in 1958, uh, Whitney Ellsworth, that was the producer of uh, the Superman, the Adventures of Superman TV series, made the infamous Super Pup pilot, uh, <laughs> which is right. uh, yeah, little people in dog costumes. Yeah. Then in 1962, he made a Superboy pilot that was never shown and didn't get picked up. There was a Wonder Woman short pilot made in 1967 by William Dozier, who, of course, did the Batman TV series. That is a bizarre interpretation. Oh, that is rough. It's it's I can't think of the, the it's it's a comedian's name but it's basically this woman who is not really unattractive but they basically make her look unattractive and they make the the gag is is that when she looks in the mirror she sees uh it's linda harrison from planet of the apes right it's nova she's wonder well she's the other wonder woman that's how she sees herself but she's really this almost ruth buzzy like woman in a wonder woman costume and uh so that didn't get picked up wonder why yeah i actually did a podcast on that on uh john s drew's uh batcave podcast we talked about that one so it's not uh, a full pilot. It's only like five minutes or something, but it, yeah, it, it does exist. It feels like it's five hours, though. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <yep. laughs> now, not not quite as bad as that, but the, William Dozier also shot a Batgirl short to introduce Yvonne Craig as Batgirl for the upcoming season of Batman. That was never aired because there's actually some differences between Batgirl's costume.
costume and her cycle to what she actually appeared as in, in the 1967 third season of Batman. Uh, Wonder Woman, again, got a TV pilot. This one actually aired. That's the one with Kathy Lee Crosby mm-hmm. in 1974. And then, of course, there's the Aquaman Mercy Reef pilot yeah. with Justin Hartley uh, mm-hmm. that was filmed in 2006 in, in, you know, in response to Smallville, uh, although it didn't spin out of Smallville because they recast Aquaman and it was a totally different interpretation. And that one was never officially released until it was put on some, you know, I think it was available to watch on, look, what, iTunes yep. and... And on iTunes and, became a number one hit immediately. Yeah, yeah. And that and then there's Wonder Woman again. There's a pilot for 2011 uh, Wonder Woman uh, TV movie pilot with Adrian Pilecki as Wonder Woman. And interestingly enough, in the cast of that is Pedro Pascal, who was, of course, plays the Mandalorian, is also in this summer's Wonder Woman 84 as Maxwell Lord, oh, wow. tying it into the JLI. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. That's crazy. Well done, Chris. Thank you. Very impressive. <laughs> okay. I got to say, actually, a lot of those pilots, well, the later ones, like Mercy Reef and the Wonder Woman pilot, I actually have a lot of love for both of those. I think there's a lot to love in those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not bad. Surprise, surprise. I'm going to argue with you, Shag, of your contention that because it didn't air, that means it was terrible. <laughs> because lots of garbage has aired. The Star Wars holiday special aired, you and time, that was sir. garbage. This was just somebody's opinion that they didn't think it would work. I will get to it, but I mean, I, I've seen lots worse stuff on television than this JLA pilot. Well, if you put it that way, I suppose, it, but it's still, I think it doesn't make it objectively good. But I guess no, but you're saying, you're, no, but you're saying it, it sucks because it didn't air. That's how we know it sucked because it didn't even air. And I'm saying there's lots of good stuff that never aired. That's just some executive who made a decision. They don't know anything. That's fair. <laughs> if, if I communicated that way, folks, I apologize uh, because it sucks because it sucks. It doesn't suck because it didn't air. <laughs> <laughs> I got you to apologize on your own show. I feel like that's a win for me already. But the beauty of this is I can edit that right out. So, well, tell you what. Why don't we get into uh, a real super brief recap of this thing? Because, it, again, it's an hour and 21 minutes. And as Chris says, it feels like five hours, uh, especially with the, all the ads in Daily Motion they throw in there. Oh, my goodness. But we'll Locally targeted, by the way. So. Yeah. <laughs> A little profiling going on, I think. So Boy, we'll do a recap, and then we will get into some discussion, because I am looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say. No, well, okay. I, I, the truth is, I'm looking forward to hearing what Chris and Max have to say. So. <coughs> so, he, so the film actually takes place in a city called New Metro, and it centers on a female meteorologist. Her name is Tori Olastotter. And through a whole series of coincidences, she stumbles upon the secret identity of a terrorist called the Weatherman. And he's holding the city ransom with his weather control device, of course, because that's what you do. And same sort of coincidence also end up granting her superpowers, which includes the ability to generate cold and freeze objects, you know, ice-related powers. And these powers actually draw the attention of the local superhero team, which are called the Justice League. And this particular incarnation of the League is composed of Green Lantern, the Flash, the Atom, Fire, and an alien named John Jones. Now, we'll talk a lot more about them in a bit, folks. And the bulk of the film is basically spending time getting to know Tori and the various Justice League members, both as superheroes, and but more importantly, we get to know them in their secret identities. We learn about their love lives, we learn about their employment struggles, their roommate issues, and the dynamics of these friendships that are between these teammates. And throughout the film, we're treated to these little asides with the characters that are kind of cool, which are like a mockumentary-style interviews where the characters are there commenting on their relationships or maybe the scene that was just shown or whatever. And through the course of the film, there are lots of efforts to play up the humor uh, in their relationships and attempts at clever banter. And please note, I, I said tried and attempts in that statement. But by the end of this one-hour and 22-minute pilot, the Justice League, with the help of Tori, does defeat the Weatherman. His schemes include things such as hurricanes and hailstorms and wildfires and 
a giant tidal wave is the big climax. And in the end, Tori is inducted into the Justice League as the heroine called Ice. That's a short version of the story. So let's talk about the characters, because I think that's the first thing we kind of need to dive into here. So let's talk about Ice. Tori Olaf's daughter, played by Kimberly Oja. Rob, uh, what are your thoughts on Ice? I thought she was great. I, I like this interpretation of the character. Uh, she's a little more, I mean, obviously we're catching her at the beginning of her career as opposed to the character we saw in the comic. Uh, I thought this actress, Kimberly Ojo, was really charming and it really hangs on her. She's by far the main character. Uh, because she's the one, you know, she's our portal into this team, which is already established by the time it starts. So I really thought she was quite charming. And we're going to get through what's happened to all these actors. She seems to have kind of disappeared after a little while, which is a darn shame, because even if this didn't air, which it didn't, I would have thought this might have led to more things for her because I thought she was quite charming in the role. Yeah, agreed. Chris. I remember her from uh, Son of the Beach on <laughs> well, FX. Of course you watched that show. <laughs> that show, I'm sorry, it's wrong, but it was hilarious. I mean, the, the lead was named Notch Johnson. I mean, you know, so it was a Baywatch spoof, and it was a whole lot of fun. It was it was like FX's number one show, apparently, and they got canceled because they had a change in management. So, oh, my gosh. So poor Kimberly Oja was, was out of work, but she was like the sweet, the kind of mousy girl on that show, and she's got a little bit of that here. You know, she's a little, you know, like especially compared like to, to Fire that we'll get to. But I, yeah, I thought she was actually a good character to uh, to kind of hang this on because she does a good job of, of being that POV character to introduce you into this strange world of superheroes and, you know, alien ships that look like whales and things like that. So <laughs> you know, so if you Google Son of the Beach and her, pretty much all that comes up are images of her in a bathing suit or various. And I mean, multiple images of her in different types of underwear. So I think she had a particular role on that show, it sounds. Well, it's been fun, guys. I got to go. So <laughs> You can Google where you talk. It's okay. <laughs> Max, what did you think of Ice? Like Rob said, I'm kind of surprised that we didn't see her in other things because she's she's carrying this pilot, really. And that's a big job. And and she pulls it off pretty well. She is obviously the Rachel of the group, uh, but she <laughs> oh, is... I disagree. Oh, really? Yeah. I think Fire's absolutely the Rachel. No. I can't peg Ice down is as the Friends template. She's not a Monica, and she's not a Phoebe. But I think uh, fire. I think fire is the Rachel. Uh, I agree to disagree. Tell, tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> tell me. Fight! 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 <laughs> I'm not going to get into a whole friend's thing. But yeah, I mean, she was fine. I mean, I guess for, for what this pilot is, is trying to be, which is, again, almost more of a buddy sitcom kind of thing, more than a superhero story. And, you know, she's sweet. She's a little ditzy, but she's obviously smart because she's she has the best job <laughs> of, of everybody. That's true. And, and you know, she's I think she uh, did fine. And as far as, you know, a comparison to her comic book character, I, I think for people who would not have read the comic, which I think is probably what this was aimed at more than anything else. I think it carries over the core of the character pretty well. Yeah, I would agree. E- even though her backstory is completely different, it still feels like ice. I, I-, I can't mm-hmm. put my finger on why. I think it's really the casting. I mean, Rob talked about how the whole pilot's sort of on her back, and she carries it, and I think that's maybe what's why she works as ice, is just she's so sweet, she's so nice, she looks the part. You know, it, it really works. There's also, I don't know if you guys got this vibe, there's very much a Meg Ryan vibe coming up from her. I couldn't not see Meg Ryan throughout the whole film. Was that just me? No, well, it's a very 90s Meg Ryan. And and this show is very 90s. I mean, oh my God, is it Oh, 90s? yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> bowling shirts over t-shirts and that yeah but yeah it, i totally get that vibe too yeah because she, she's supposed to be the sweet girl next door i liked also the shipping they were doing with her and ray palmer i thought that was fun you could kind of see a relationship building especially in the little cutscenes, the the interstitial mockumentary stuff there's a lot there going on so i thought that was fun i enjoyed that aspect of it and the, the big question i left uh, left with though is she gets her powers from weatherman's uh weather manipulator she spills a bottle of water on it and suddenly she has ice powers it, it, it makes no sense whatsoever it's never addressed again it was a you know a quick gimmick to give her powers i would hope maybe they'd explain it more in a later episode but i don't think that was really the point of that so it, it left me definitely scratching my head like wow that's uh that's a weird one yeah that was a big come down from john wesley's ship blowing across the room in the flash pilot you know that's like one of the one of the best damn origin sequences of a superhero ever on cbs like seven years earlier and yeah she like pours a bottle of water into a briefcase and gets superpowers you know so very strange very strange and and, you know you mentioned the comics max if i remember right by 1997 i think ice was dead actually in the well she died at some point uh, when all the different justice leagues restructured yeah she was because you know what that's another weird thing about this so this is based on the jli the blahaha stuff but the blahaha comics had been over for five years when this pilot was shot in fact at this point what was on the shelves was the insanely successful Graham morrison jla book which was just killing it in sales and yet they dipped back for this team which is so strange now rob you said she kind of dropped off the face of the world you're right son of the beach was uh, kimberly oja's big breakout role if you will and then she had a couple stu- stuff uh, on the oc which was a, a, a tv show of the 90s or early 2000s at least and then uh, she last appeared in a 2008 movie so she did just kind of disappear which is a shame because I, I thought she was really good yeah i mean maybe and maybe she chose to you know i mean not everybody that's not acting anymore is because they didn't they couldn't get work anymore some people were just like eh, to hell with this but for someone you've never heard of to carry a whole pilot that's a that's a heavy load yeah all right on to the next character which is the rachel of the group max um <laughs> fire the character is bb DeCosta and played by michelle hurd so uh well, max why don't you start us off here tell us a little bit what, what you thought of the fire well i was a little disappointed just that they took away her brazilian heritage mm. even though they did they did keep the the last name sort of and i know that in the comics she was also called bb at some point but i, I thought she was fine i mean she's supposed to be strong and strong-willed and confident and you know i, I thought michelle Hurd did a nice job with that in a lot of ways she kind of brought that hero stature more than almost anybody else did everyone else just kind of seemed like they were kind of tripping through the <laughs> tripping through the whole thing but you know she actually had some some stature to her which i liked i would agree with that it's a good assessment uh rob what do you think i liked her in this i mean she we see the most of her in like her job and then she she gets the whole rom- romantic subplot with david Crumholtz, which is like he's and he's like 12 in the show so that's kind of like a whole weird thing i will say it was sort of shocking to see her show up on picard i was like whoa that's fire from from the live pilot so it's kind of amazing what gravitational pull some of these failed projects have because sometimes you're in one of these things and it just kills your career and then she's obviously done quite well for herself besides uh, doing that she's been in hawaii 50 she was in uh, ash versus the evil dead i knew her from daredevil the marvel series on netflix she was actually in the second season playing a district attorney samantha reyes so uh i'd seen her in that and thought she oh was really- yeah. yeah exactly that i had the same realization i was like oh my gosh when i was reading about her history she was apparently also in uh nbc's blind spot but the picard thing i didn't even know about till late last night because i watched an episode of picard and was looking at imdb and she popped up and i'm like what the what 
So, uh, yeah, really cool. Chris, what did you think of Fire? Yeah, I thought that she was probably one of the stronger actors in this. And like Rob said, she had that whole subplot. We'll get into whether that subplot was necessary, but she did a good job with it. And and I agree with Max. She definitely seemed to be the most competent member of, of the Justice League, actually. She definitely pulled off the – well, we'll get into the costumes later, but she pulled <laughs> off the look. I, I kind of wish she was a little more like the uh, Fire of the comics, but, you know, maybe the Fire of the comics is a little – sometimes the way she maybe my 1997 the fire of the comics would have come across a little too broad on t- on a tv show like this on a pilot maybe they thought so they they toned her down a little bit she wasn't quite as vivacious as as the as the comic book version but they did they did that on jlu the fire there was definitely the fire from the comics <laughs> but which we'll, we'll get into on on my show jlu cast eventually nicely done sir that, nice plug yeah i thought she helped kind of carry the other side of the plot in in this pilot actually you brought up a couple of really good points like is, you're right she's not the fiercely sexual character that she is in the comics, but there's still definitely a sexual vibe. I mean, she knows she's gorgeous. She wears outfits that she knows she's going to get people's attention. There's a couple of comments about love and romance and things like that. So I think it's it's there thinly, and it's mm-hmm. probably a conscious decision because I mean, I think Silk Stockings was on the air at the same time, so clearly television wasn't scared of having sexually charged things. It just seemed like they, they scaled this character back, which I think worked well. You also said something very important that I want to mention, Chris. I feel like, hands down, she is the best actor in the whole show. Like, all the other characters, I feel like they're reading their lines and hitting their marks, her, I believe she's really saying what she's saying. I totally bought every line she delivered. She was very believable, very natural in the part, and I thought that was really impressive. And I'm glad to see she, she's she gone on to do a lot of stuff, because I think she was deserving of it. So she can fly, which that didn't really come off very naturally. She looked very stiff every time she was flying, so that that's probably more on the special effects side than anything else. But that was sort of interesting that she could fly, because the next character we're going to talk about couldn't really. But there was one quick nod that I didn't notice till like the third time I watched this. Yeah, I watched it that many times. Her agent, the guy who was getting her bookings, he worked for the Sparkman agency, and they called him Sparky, so he's Sparky Sparkman. I'm pretty sure that's supposed to be, it's got to be a nod to Funky Flashman. It's got to be. There's no way this guy I thought the same thing. Didn't yeah. think about it. <laughs> so and then uh, I liked the guy Gardner and uh, Fire shipping that was nice I thought that was a lot of fun you could kind of sense they had their history and you kind of feel like oh maybe there's going to be something else here which was nice that was pretty cool and again she's the Rachel you know she's got the career that isn't going anywhere she's kind of the, the one who's a little more cutesy sexually you know active flirtatious yeah I, I feel like she's totally the Rachel <laughs> I'm not going to take the bait I'm not going to take the bait <laughs> tried I'm trying here so alright up next Next is Green Lantern, but not the one you're expecting, folks. This is Guy Gardner, but he's wearing Kyle's mask and Kyle's gloves and Kyle's uh, symbol, and he's wearing Guy's vest, and he's got Hal's hair. It's, yeah, it's a whole mashup. So, we'll start with you, Chris. What do you think of Guy Gardner? Uh, Rob will know what I'm talking about when I say Clinton Spilsbury uh, <laughs> from The Legend of the Lone Ranger. Uh, no, this guy's not that bad, but it, I don't know if it's, it's the actor's fault here, but the portrayal of Green Lantern, I mean, oh my god, Dude, you got the most powerful weapon in the universe, and you can't even pick a lock with it. I mean, <laughs> holy cow! I, I'm just, uh, yeah. I mean, this guy was fine. He just was very. He was, you know, the handsome guy. Even though he he doesn't have very good luck with the ladies. That was, you know, a recurring theme. He didn't have luck with fire. He's not having luck with his on again, off again girlfriend Cheryl. Which, th- you know, they were going to do something there. You know, he's the handsome guy that just can't land a relationship. But yeah, he that part was fine. But when he was Green Lantern, he looked good. You know, I mean, as far as 
Jones, he looks like a superhero, but God, they really did not use Green Lantern well. I mean, it was just like so disappointing. It's like, it's freaking Green Lantern. He's the most freaking powerful Justice Leaguer. If Superman isn't around and Martian Manor is hanging out in the headquarters, Green Lantern's your biggest guy in the field, you know? So it's like, oh, that just was such a disappointment. Now, I, I will say, you said he looked good. I would agree that his costume is pretty well put together, except for one small problem. Green Lantern's costume is freaking blue. <laughs> I, I, I didn't notice that until someone pointed like it out to me. When you look at him standing next to Fire and standing next to Martian Manhunter, he is freaking blue. He is the Blue Lantern. What the hell? Yeah, he was ahead of Jeff Johns. Yeah, he's definitely a... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I meant he looked the part of a superhero, just his face and his way he carried himself. He looked super heroic. His costume will say for another another time. Fair yeah, enough. another. Yeah, okay. Max, what do you think of Green Lantern? Well, I, I think the, the actor Matthew Settle did a great job of giving us a, a Hal Jordan. Unfortunately, this was supposed to be Guy Gardner. <laughs> you know, and normally I, I don't expect characters to transfer directly from comics into TV or into movies. I know they're going to change them for whatever reason but this was so far from any depiction of guy gardner that it was it was just a distraction for me as someone who you know as a comic book reader and again i don't know if that would matter at all to to the the casual tv watcher but for me it was really annoying and what made it worse was i thought the character was just so boring <laughs> it was a shame because for being the late 90s the special effects of the green lantern of the, of the ring were not that bad really but you know like chris said he didn't do anything with it <laughs> he didn't <bring> <laughs> He made an umbrella. He made a little helicopter thing because apparently he can't fly on his, you know, he can't just float up and fly. Oh, that's so irritating. So, yeah, yeah. And so I, I think of the characters that we're talking about, I think this Green Lantern is the one that kind of rubbed me the wrong way the most. Rob, what do you think of Chandler Gardner? Yeah, I mean, he's totally uh, Guy Rayner Jordan in this thing. I mean, he's just a little <laughs> bit of everybody. Uh, I agree with Max. I, I'm nothing against Matthew Settle, but uh, to me, he, this guy was just blank blank like i i have like i i came away with nothing from him like his personality the like why he's kind of a hero what's his thing? like I, all the scenes with him were just to me and completely indistinct unlike everybody else where i got some read from them uh, this guy was just i feel like they were like oh he's handsome so he's like are gonna be our main guy and you know and we'll get to this shortly but like i probably like this movie the most of, of probably anybody here certainly more than you because i just feel like they're in there trying and they're just defeated by the fact they don't have any budget but to me it's like you don't have a budget don't do green lantern i mean you know what i mean no one's gonna care the people that you're trying to sell this to don't know green lantern from anybody so just put in somebody easier to do because you just don't have the money for it you've already spent the money on flash and all the all the glean makeup you had to cover david ogden steers and so just (laughs) go go just do something simple so to me it's like you can't do green lantern on a budget you just can't and so don't even try there's so many things to talk about with this too the guy gardner thing too you talked about the sort of the amalgam i don't even understand why they went with guy gardner because he is such a departure i know guys from the jli era but if you're gonna be holding on to it and insisting that the flash be barry even though it was nothing like barry why not just call green lantern hal then if you're gonna go for the iconic yeah. version it mm-hmm. just called him hal give him the amalgam of kyle and guy's costume that's fine but why i just don't i don't understand it now i have a theory if you want to hear it yeah go ahead okay my theory is this thing 
thing was probably in development for years. Fair. I'm betting when it first started, he was really like Guy Gardner. Hmm. And then over time, you got studio people in, you got script notes, you know, can we rostify him by 20%? That kind of stuff. And <laughs> and uh, I'm, I am betting that if you saw the very first iteration of the script, not like a published one, but like the very first version ever shown to like CBS, I'm betting this guy was Guy Gardner. And then over time, the studio was like, we really need somebody less unlikable. So can you just make him more like a regular guy? Make him Chandler Bing. Make him Chandler Bing. And they didn't see the need to change the name because they don't care. So I'm I'm betting that that's how it, it became. Like they started very distinct and then they got watered down. That is very possible. Other quick tips real quick. Like they very purposely gave him a yellow tie at the party, which just really stands out, which drove me nuts because all I could think about is Green Lantern in yellow. If you're going to give Green Lantern something yellow, you have to do something with that. You can't just put it out there and do nothing. So that frustrated me. So Matthew Settle, uh, you guys mentioned him. So he went on to do a couple of things uh, of note. Uh, Band of Brothers, he was in that. And he was in Gossip Girl. Uh, but for me, he you said he's very bland. He really is. He, he I think he's the most 90s of all the actors in this because he just has that look and that feel. And I think he is the most, uh, like, you know, in, in your high school yearbook, you get the most likely to. I think he would have won the most likely to do corporate training videos award. Would have been where this guy <laughs> ended up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, up next, The Flash, also known as Barry Allen. Rob, what do you think? Well, he's the Joey. Yes, uh, which, 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 which means after Justice League concluded its 10-year run, he would have gotten his own spitoff where he moves to Los Angeles because <laughs> that was the thing. Yep. I do not understand why the technology that existed to give John Wesley Shipp a cool Flash costume. And I know I'm just repeating what Chris said, but the Flash costume in 1990 is so much better than the piece of garbage that this poor actor is stuck with. And I understand that they didn't have a lot of money, but I mean, it's still Warner Brothers. Dude, the one Dan Aykroyd wore in the 70s in the Saturday Night Live yeah. stand was better than this mm-hmm. one. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, the, right. The, the Six Flags guy has a better <laughs> costume. <laughs> so it's like, I just, that that makes no sense that you just couldn't dig that up out of mothballs and, and stick that actor in there because that mask that he is, is wearing is just, oh, it's so bad. Well, the lightning bolts are worse. They actually are hanging off of him like they didn't finish gluing them on. It's crazy. Um, all right. So, uh, Chris, what do you think of, of Barry Allen, The Flash? Yeah, it, it, this guy is like, there's no denying. You might argue about the other friends' analogs. This is, this is they usually just call him Joey. He's not Barry Allen. He's, he's not, he's a little bit more like, I guess, one version of Wally West at one point. But yeah, he is so Joey. I, I know we're going to get more into the costumes. You guys already kind of discussed it. But he, more than anybody, he seemed uncomfortable in the costume. He seemed like he, like he couldn't turn his head real well. He, he looked like he was hermetically sealed in that thing. It was so tight. And I mean, he, he wasn't in like bad shape. It's not like he was like overweight or something, but he was so just saran wrapped in that thing. He looked like he couldn't move. And if you if you notice, he's like kind of hunkering his shoulders down and turning weird. I mean, it's and he got no cape to hide behind like most Batman actors. So it, it messes his performance up, I think. And, you know, it's I don't know how long they could have sustained this. I mean, you know, through the pilot, he can't get a job. And at the end, he gets one. And maybe maybe, you know, maybe they would have stuck with that where he was the counselor at the, for those kids, uh, which, you know, that might have been a 
fun thing to do to have like some, you know, have him be over some little moppets that could have been like reoccurring characters on the show or something. But he had some little kind of cute, fun moments. But yeah, he was it was so obvious that this was like I'm surprised they didn't just like have Joey in the script and mark it out and put Flash, Flash, <laughs> Flash. So. I, I think the gimmick would have been that he would have had to have a new job every week and his powers would have messed it up. I think that was that was the gimmick they were probably going to go for rather than him keeping that job. And, and you talk yeah. about a little bit of the costume, like I'm being uncomfortable. There are parts where he's spying on people and he's hiding in the bushes in a giant bright red costume. It's just, it looks <laughs> ludicrous. It's just, they, they did not know what to do with this character. Which, Matt, which Brian Singer would steal for in Superman Returns, that hack. <laughs> <laughs> Max, what do you think of Barry Allen? You know, and I agree with what Chris was saying. You know, he, this was obviously a version of Wally. You know, like most of these characters, they're all they're all kind of losers, and and I don't really understand that beyond again the the friends template, and and I guess trying to make them relatable in some way. Because you know, we mentioned before, Fire is a, is an actress, but she's kind of a struggling actress, mm-hmm. and I'm not really even sure what Guy does. He does something in software. He's right? a software salesman. Yes. Yeah, and Barry is chronically unemployed and he's just kind of dumb and aimless and I'm not really sure how you're supposed to reconcile that with someone who is also a hero because I don't know how someone with that kind of character would be able to put on a costume and run around and save people the dissonance I couldn't get over and also you know he's a beefy dude <laughs> and, and I don't expect that from my flash you know like you hide that. he looks more like a rugby player yeah. and, and like a combination of a, of a rugby player in a red hot you know he just it just does not work <laughs> well kenny johnston played him and unfortunately he didn't really go on to much i mean he's done stuff he's still acting but nothing that is really recognizable but the, the thing that kept sticking to my crawl was just it is the barry allen angle it drives me nuts if if they're gonna make the green lantern guy gardner who had been a, a green lantern since what like 85 or so wally had been the flash since about the same amount of time so it's not like there's a name recognition thing there and this character is so far beyond indifferent what the flash was in the previous tv series that there was no, it's not like there's any allegiance to the name Barry Allen because people recognize it because it's not the same character even remotely so I just cannot begin to fathom why they didn't make him Wally West except for maybe an analogy like Rob made earlier where the script started off with this character being one thing and then by the end they said no 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 make him like Joey and then the name just hung around that's the only thing I can think of I'm betting that that is what happened yeah, yeah. alright let's move on to the next character uh, the Adam uh, or Ray Palmer played by John Kassir I guess is how you say it um, Max what do you think well you know this is this is our Ross, I think. Um, oh, absolutely. He, you know, I. <laughs> this, this, um, and at first I was already ready to not like this version of of Ray Palmer, but in a w- weird way, he kind of started to ingratiate himself to me. I never did quite buy him as as a hero, and I could not get the idea of inch high private eye out of my mind. <laughs> saving but, cats, so yeah, he's not really a big deal. Yeah, exactly. And his, you know, we'll get again. We're going to get into the costumes later, but I think he probably had maybe the clunkiest costume of all, which did not help. I guess he's fine. He, he reminded me of kind of what an early, early, early version of the Adam might have been, as far as you know, a scientist who's, who is stuck in his lab, except now he's a high school. Teacher. Yeah, I don't know. He was fine. <laughs> so you think he walks in every scene and he just goes, it's fine. Kind of like It's that. fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he was probably one of the more likable characters. But yeah, beyond that, I, I had a hard time buying him as, as anyone who would jump into superheroics. Rob, what do you think? Oh, I was really disappointed that Ray Palmer didn't break 
into like horror themed puns. I really wanted Ooh. him to do all that. Somebody's done the you research. <laughs> Hello, boys and ghouls. <laughs> <laughs> Tell the people at home. Uh, yeah, yes, we don't know that John Cassier was the voice of the Crypt Keeper on HBO's Tales from the Crypt for the 79 seasons that that show uh, went on. Um, I actually kind of liked him as Ray Palmer here. The the one thing that, that does fail him is the costume oh, yeah. where he is dressed like a linebacker. It is just the worst costume possibly. And a scene where the Adam is responsible for the single worst joke in this entire pilot, I would say. But I thought he was fine. He's, you know, he's kind of the nerdlinger uh, Adam character. So I thought that was fine. But yeah, he's cl- so clearly the Ross. I, I, I thought he was going to be like, we were on a break or something like that. <laughs> Pivot, 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 pivot. (laughs) Oh, God, that would have been great if they were moving stuff into the JLA headquarters like a couch. (laughs) And he's like, pivot. That would have been awesome. Moving day, moving day. That might have saved this pilot, yeah. There you go. Should have jumped right to the seventh episode or eighth episode and done that. Chris, what did you think of it? Uh, You know, he was kind of unconventional. I mean, he's kind of balding. You know, he's got a, you know, I saw a superhero with receding hairline. I can get behind that. But, uh, you know, yeah, respect. uh, But, uh, yeah. You know, I thought him and Tori had a little, you know, there's definitely nice little chemistry there, especially in their little interstitial interviews, you know, and, and I, I love the, the, the one of the funnier things was the recurring, you know, you're just so nice. Yeah, nice. You know, he's, he's the nice guy, you know, and yeah, he, he's just, he was pretty charming in this, but I liked him a lot better as Ray. When he was the Adam, yeah, that, that whatever the hell it looked like, a, <laughs> we'll get into it, but it, it looked like a Macy's Day uh, balloon that they had somehow shrank and they stuck him in it or something. I don't know what the hell that thing was, but yeah, we'll, we'll get to it. But I'm glad you specified the difference between Ray and the Adam because at the Adam, he yes, he's, he looks horrible and he's useless. He saved a cat in the thing. And then as far as I know, I don't think he did anything else as the Adam. And also his power, like he shrinks as he goes into action, which just makes any distance he has to cover a lot farther. It doesn't make sense to shrink that early on in the adventure. But as Ray, especially upon the third viewing, as I mentioned earlier, he kind of became one of my favorite characters because he's just so damn charming. The actor. It's it's down to the actor. In those interstitial interviews you mentioned, the more I watched him, I'm pretty sure a lot of that was ad-libbed because... He starts going into a lot of squeaky, funny voices in those things and does some silly antics that he doesn't do in the normal action scenes. So I think he was ad-libbing, and that's just kind of that actor's nature. So he, he kind of became one of my favorites. I kind of like him. And as Rob mentioned, he was the Crypt Keeper. He also uh, has done a ton of voiceover work on shows like Rocket Power and Looney Tunes Show and tons and tons of other stuff. So he's actually done quite well for himself. Then, uh, oh, here, here's the elephant in the room, or the green oh, here elephant we go. in the room. All right, I'm getting ready. John right. Jones, the <laughs> alien. You know, although you last, Rob. Chris, what did you think of John Jones? Damn it. Uh, I don't even know if I want to do this. You know, of course, this is the most infamous casting in this. He's the most famous guy in this. So, of course, David Augusteers of, of, of MASH fame. And everybody, you know, he was never a, a thin guy. He was always, you know, a little little hefty. Uh, so, you know, you cast him as a superhero and, you know, you're you're kind of going into territory that most superhero casting doesn't go into. And uh, Bouncing boy. Yeah, yeah. Well, unless it's Mounting Boy. So, you know, Marshall Manter is not an action character here. He is basically 
basically he's the Professor X of the of, of the uh, of this Justice League. He stays in the headquarters and mentally, you know, contacts the the heroes. And you know, David Ogden Steers, despite this, his presence, works in a role. I mean, because he's David Ogden Steers, and he's a great actor, and he has a fantastic voice. And uh, you know, they put him in the makeup. His even though his face looks like Jim Carrey cast off from the mask, we uh, does. it does. It, it, he pulls it off. I, I think he actually, if you get past. The, the 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 physical the physical body not body shaming here but just the physical body difference between the comic uh, Jean and this he actually does make it work. Well, they filmed him like the suit was uh, rather than showing the green chest and all that. You know, he he had black underneath the red bands, which worked well too for slimming and the big cape. And it actually I think worked pretty well until they'd film film him profile. Like straight on, right. you didn't mm-hmm. see the sort of belly. But when he, they'd film him sideways, oh my gosh, it, the portliness really showed. So, all right, Max, what did you think of Jean Jones? Like you guys were saying, a, a cape hides a lot of sins. So, <laughs> you know, thank, thank God for that. He was all right, actually. I, when he first started talking, I expected him to start talking about what a beast Hawkeye is. But <laughs> that, that, that's my that's my own prejudice and, and background. I think the way they used him was pretty good. And I, I thought David Ogden Steers did a nice job of kind of capturing the personality of John Jones in the sense of being the calm center of of the team. I, I thought that worked pretty well. Oh my god, though that mask. I I to me it looks like the mask like a cast off from uh, Swamp Thing. Oh wow. Like they, got, like they got an old Swamp Thing mask and just kind of like made it worse. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's not it's not it's not good. And I and there's a part I think I swear to god you can see his neck. Yes. You know cuz like the, the whole thing doesn't connect and yeah, it's it's you can see flesh color around the neck, yeah. Yeah, it's it's 90s TV. But you know David Ogden Steers, you know god bless him cuz I would never have thought he would have said yeah, you know, I'm going to be an alien called John Jones. Why not? I, I never would have expected that from him. And, you know, and he he shows up for it. So that's I, I appreciate that. All right, Rob, bring us home and uh, with, with your thoughts, because I know you're dying to talk about Winchester here. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm incapable of not liking David Ogden Steers in anything because of my love of him from, from MASH. Every time he showed up in anything, Beauty and the Beast or Star Trek Next Generation or just the Perry Mason movies, I just I'm just I feel warm and fuzzy when I see him in, in, in anything. Yeah, I look, he obviously doesn't have the typical body. I think if they had decided to A, never show John Johns in action, like flying with the team, or when he was out on the field, only have him be a shapeshifter, then they could have gotten away with it. And, and keeping him in the shadows, I actually think he brings the right amount of gravitas to Martian Manhunter. I like even has the little joke about, you know, isn't it hot for you in here? And he's like, oh, 360 to five degrees is a day in the beach here where I'm from and stuff like that. Like, if I can correct you, because I love doing that. He's not Martian Manhunter. He has never called Martian Manhunter. It's critical because they never establish he's from Mars. They only say he's okay. an alien. So All right, John John. John John. Uh, Jesus. Um, but uh, no, I, I thought he did. I really thought he did a good job. I mean, he does look a little silly. The makeup, he does look like the mask. Now that Chris has said it, I won't be able to unsee it. Um, <laughs> you know, he's looking at he's looking at those pictures of Kimberly OJ in her bikini. He's like, and the eyes are shooting out, whatever. Um, but uh, I thought it's so clearly Professor X's 
friends. That's this pitch is that he's going to hang out in the shadows and be their, their major domo and, and, and just kind of, you know, only show up in as a shapeshift or whatever. That's clearly what it is. He will never be in the field running around with these actors getting into adventures, at least in the beginning. So if they were going to use him like that, then I thought it was actually a, a good choice. I, yeah, it's weird that they would cast someone who doesn't have a typical superhero body, but that isn't always, you know, if, if they were going to use him that way, I think it, it was really pretty cool. I, I got to say, I, I think what would have made more sense was just show him as David Ogden Styers. I say Styers, Steers, I'm sorry. But show him like he looks like normally and then have him reveal he's a Martian for a few moments and then switch back to human. Let him stay in a human form most of the time. Yeah, so that's true. It, mm-hmm. would, it would save on money. It would save on silliness. You know, all of that. Now, I do get the sense that they probably just got him for an afternoon. Like, that's probably all they could <laughs> afford was him for an afternoon. Like, they spent the morning putting him in makeup and then they got him in front of a camera and a microphone. And that's what they got out of him. Because, yeah, right. I mean, it, it works where you send him in the field in, an, you know, in someone else's body. They had, you know, Miguel Ferrer running around right. as Martian Manhunter. You know, that's a good way to use David Ogden Steer's voice. Still Martian Manhunter's in, or sorry, John Jones is still out there acting in the field. See, I love, you did it too. I know, I know. <laughs> So uh, yeah, it was uh, it was it was tough. Now the best thing about his costume, they gave him the enormous popped collar, like Martian Manhunter's supposed to have. That made me. If you look at the collar, you'll never stop unseeing it. The collar is enormous. It's glorious. I love it. He swings his cape like a boss. He looks cool. <laughs> he swings yeah. his cape like Batman does in the bell tower at the end of Batman. That's true. He does. You're right. He does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So of course we all know what uh, David Ogden Stiers has done. But if you may not know, he actually came back to the Justice League at one point for the animated series Justice League Unlimited. There's a podcast about that, I hear. And he plays King mm-hmm. Solovar. Yes, he does. Yes, he was also the voice of the Penguin in, uh, in the Batman Mystery of the Batwoman. Ah, so, yeah. Good call. Yeah. I didn't have that. Uh, speaking of people who came back to the Justice League role, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about The Weatherman, or Dr. Wesley Eno, played by Miguel Ferrer. Rob, what would you think? This is, I mean, it's Miguel Ferrer. We know he's a big, he was, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. Uh, he was a big comic book fan, so he probably just enjoyed being in this. This is another one of these things where you're, why not just call him the Weather Wizard? Right! Why mm-hmm. bother calling him Weatherman? Like, you're so close, and then you make a hard right turn. It's <laughs> <laughs> why? Why do that? Uh, but but short of that, it was fun. I mean, he had just that, that voice, that great oh, voice so that he had. So, yeah, I mean, he was fun. I mean, boy, the costume they give him. Holy jeez, man. That looks they look like they just pulled that out of a uh, the uh, the lost and found, you know, at like a department store or something. I mean, it is so thrown together. It looks so cheap. But but he looks like he's having fun. He the way he delivers his lines to, to ice where it sounds like he's hitting on her and everything, even though he's not. But and he sounds like he kind of is. So he was great. I, I enjoyed him very much, even though those videos of him as Weatherman are rough looking. Well, it's weird, too. <laughs> it's supposed to be like a computer you know, a simulation because right. he's filming himself without anything on. But the video resulting is him with like that, like you said, that crazy, you know, almost terrorist sort of beret and mask, and oh, eyebrows, or whatever the hell's going on there. Rough. So it's all like hologram CGI, I guess is what it's, we're supposed to think. Uh, Chris, what would you think of uh, Miguel Ferrer? It's Miguel Ferrer, like Rob said. He he always brings an intensity in into every role he was ever in. And, you know, I was just sitting here thinking, you know, if you wanted a, 
a more action-oriented Martian Manhunter or John Jones, what if they switched these characters? What if Miguel Ferrer was uh, John and David Ogden Sears was a weatherman? Oh, wow. uh, you know, yeah. I just I just popped in my head. I was like, hmm. You know, it would have worked either way because he could have been the David Ogden Sears could have been the kindly mentor uh, scientist that would never do anything like that, and then he's really just put out because they haven't funded him. He's losing his funding, and now he's he's going all you know. You still could have kept the really bad uh, VR terrorist video uh, version, but it's really him behind the camera, and so that might have actually worked. Yeah, but I, as as for, you know, it's uh, you know Miguel Ferrer is always great, and of course he's got a lot of DC cred uh, voicing characters on the in the DCAU, including the Weather Wizard Woo-hoo! on Superman animated series, and, and uh, of course <laughs> and Aquaman. I was getting there. Aquaman on Superman right. animated series. Yeah, <laughs> you also played Martian Manhunter in Justice League New Frontier, and then just today I was watching the Teen Titans Judas contract and he plays Deathstroke. Max, what do yep. you think of the weatherman? You know, the character is awful, but <laughs> but Miguel Ferrer is is awesome. I mean, I'm I'm always in the bag for Miguel Ferrer. You know, I I was introduced to him with RoboCop, and after that, you know, how, how does he not become one of your heroes? He's he's just a great actor. He elevates every scene that he's in, no matter what he's in. He he was in a movie called The Night Flyer, which actually came out the same year in '97, which is one of my favorite awful horror movies, and it's because of him. He carries the whole thing, and I think in in this, every scene he's in, he he actually makes the characters he's playing against, which is usually uh, Ice, more believable. I think I think he kind of grounds everything in a way that helps this pilot maybe more than it well as much as it needed. <laughs> well, I well I stated earlier that I think Fire is the most natural of the of the actors in this thing. Ferrera, even if it's not natural, yeah, he just the word you used was elevate, which was perfect. He elevates the whole source material, the script. I mean, he's he's just fantastic. He is wonderful. He's great. He's just got presence in everything he does. So I loved seeing him in this thing. Uh, then real quick, just to name check some of the, the more minor characters, Martin is played by David Krumholtz, who played like the young casting director in The Thing, who kind of had a crush on fire. Yeah, I mean, D- David Krumholtz has actually had a really good career. I mean, he went on to a long run on the, the TV show Numbers, mm-hmm. which was a CBS show. I never saw that show, but it ran for many, many seasons. Uh, he was on Freaks and Geeks. He had a, a recurring role on that show, which was great. He was recently in the Coen Brothers movie Hail Caesar. So, I mean, he's had r- really quite a good career. So it, it's sort of fun to see him show up in this. He was uh, in the Santa Claus movies as like one of the lead elf and all those too. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's been in a lot of stuff, so it's kind of amazing that he sort of, I, I knew him. I bought this uh, as a bootleg at the time. And I remember I recognized even back then I was like, wow, what's he doing in this? So it's like, they must've caught, caught him on the upswing. Yeah, absolutely. Humble beginnings there. Absolutely. Then we've also got Cheryl who played Green Lantern's girlfriend. She's played by uh, Elisa Donovan. And I wasn't even going to really use her much in this discussion, except I started researching her. She's actually pretty well known. She was a, a major character in the Clueless movie, which I didn't realize. And so uh, every article I've read is like, of course you recognize her from Clueless. I'm like, oh, okay. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie. And she's also in Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and she's done a number of other things as well. And so uh, that kind of rounds out our cast. So let's get into the plot here. Now, you guys wanted to say, well, since we just talked about Martin and Cheryl, why don't we touch on that? Somebody had something to say about Martin's role in the film, I think? Uh, yeah, that was me. Yeah, and then nothing against, you know, David Crumholtz, who he was, he was great. He's, he's 
you know, I always like him and everything he's in. My, my kids have watched the Santa Claus movies to death over the past 20 years, so I, I know him well. But that subplot, you know, this, you know, it was just a whole thing that could have, like, cut out of this. If they, you know, and it, it's weird because I've got a version of this movie that's cut down. It's like, doesn't have the inter- interstitials, the interviews, but it's still got all of this. I'm like, why didn't you cut this out? You know, it's like, this doesn't need to be, if you're going to cut something, just cut this part out. It's, it, it just, I don't know. I guess it was just trying to give some of the other characters something else to do, give fire something to do. But yeah, I, I could have done without this subplot. Plus he was pretty stalky. Uh, you know, I know he was young, but it was, yeah. Nowadays it, it comes across even worse now than it probably did in 1997. So yeah, yeah, that's pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. But that's my, <laughs> that's my problem with it is it's, it's kind of creepy and it's worse in the script because in the script he's supposed to be what, 14 I think right oh geez that, I didn't I didn't read it that close is that what it says yeah I think she I think he's supposed to be 14 because later there's a mention of a 13 year old cheerleader oh well, they anyway. say 16 in the actual filmed version that's interesting if the, if yeah. the script says that young I'm glad they aged him up but you know not that much and it's it's a whole weird thing because not necessarily because a young man is being stalkery with with an older woman because young men are stupid and they tend to do that sort of thing <laughs> but also but, but mostly because BB Fire almost seems kind of into it. Yeah. And that's what makes me weird out a little bit about it. Yeah, she she's definitely a little too encouraging at times. I mean, he she's not flat telling him no and get lost, kid. She's she's letting him get in the door a little bit too much. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, she's Chris, too into oh, it. goodness, that's filthy. <laughs> well, I totally agree that that part could have been exercised from the plot and cut out that extra twenty minutes to get this thing down to an hour very easily. And, and Chris, by the way, you talked about the shorter version. I think my bootleg, my original VHS bootleg, is the shorter version because when I watched it here for this. Uh, the first time I'm like, I don't remember any of these interstitials at all. So I, I think you're right. Yeah, when I watched the day when I started watching the Daily Motion version, I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't the version I've been I've watched before. And there's like one or two little extra things that aren't in the the version that's out on Daily Motion that we'll get to uh, at the end. But yeah, it, for the most part, it's just they cut those parts out and a few other things that they shouldn't have cut out, but they kept all the Martin stuff. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, the first version I ever saw on VHS did not have all the fourth fourth wall breaking stuff. Which I think is actually some of the best stuff in the film. Me too. Yeah. Okay. I mean, otherwise, I mean, the story's fine. I I like. I kind of like that the Justice League is sort of already established in this world, as opposed to them putting them all together. I, you know, it's kind of weird that the JLA is that they know them in this city, and yet they seem to have like their secret base that nobody can follow them to. You know what I mean? Like Just they. Under a <laughs> It's a new world. I mean, every time they went to that door with all the graffiti on it, it just, I just kept hearing the Fresh Prince of Bel Air song start to play, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's just like that was. It's so undignified to see these heroes just walk into a door. I'm like, really, you guys can come up with a slightly more, you know, exciting way of getting in and out of your base. It's a perfectly serviceable pilot plot for bringing in the new character. Ice is going to be our main character, and she's seeing the weirdness of all this. So, I'm, nothing spectacular, but a pretty. I can understand why you would make that the the intro to your series you know i I kind of agree with with rob and the idea that it's it's an okay one and done kind of script a lot of it is kind of throwaway a lot of it is very kind of predictable but you know like a lot of pilots i think the idea is more to introduce the audience to the characters the the story is there in service of of the characters such as it is and you know i i think it does it does its job in that sense when i was watching this i was asking myself if i saw this in 97 what i want to see more and 
And the answer is yes, but I also wouldn't be brokenhearted if I missed an episode. Well, to put that in perspective, Buffy premiered about the same time this pilot would have, in theory, aired as well. And the Buffy pilot made me come back for multiple episodes. I don't know that this one would. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and that's the thing, you know, and... Well, you just answered my question. I was watching Buffy. <laughs> I wasn't watching this. And, but, you know, it's, it's, it's okay for what it is. I think it could have been better. I don't know that necessarily more episodes would have made it better, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we yeah. probably got the, the, the gist of what the series was going to be about in the first episode, and there's probably not a lot more to say other than more fun, wacky, you know, character interactions of sitting around the coffee shop as, you know, as, as, as they hope to bank off of Friends. Yeah, I, I think you guys are on it. I mean, the plot's fine. I mean, it's, you know, like we said, Tori's the POV character. And, you know, but once she's in in the group, I mean, you know, I mean, she can play the newbie. I mean, if this went to series, she can pay, play the newbie for a while. But you don't get the impression that these guys are really all that great at being superheroes. Right. So they haven't been doing it that long. So they're all pretty green, except Green Lantern, who's blue. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> but, but I will think when, when Rob said that about... This is going to be bad. But what Rom said that about the Fresh Prince, it just jumped in my head that the theme song should have been, uh, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers under the bridge. And (laughs) under the bridge downtown, I joined the JLA. Wow. Wow. uh, (laughs) That just happened. That's your Patreon dollars at work, folks. Yeah, I think Max made a real good point when he said, really, the plot was just to service the characters. Because some of the plot makes absolutely no freaking sense. I'm like, even the big picture stuff, like, what really is the weatherman's plan? I get he's trying to get money, but I don't really understand what for. I mean, they're cutting his government funding, but that wasn't his money. That was money for the project. So is he going to use the ransom money to fund his project? Or is he just trying to get revenge? They're not really very clear on that. They don't, they don't spend any time explaining that to us. And then, like, when Tori discovers all of this, instead of going to, I don't know, the cops, she comes to the science teacher's house to talk to him. The guy who just hacked into her computers because she thinks he can help. That makes no freaking sense except, again, to service the characters. It's totally bonkers. I did like the Cheryl plot twist where the girlfriend's in love with the superhero but not the regular guy. I kind of dug that. I mean, that's that's a plot twist that we're all used to as comic book readers. But for the general public, that probably would have been sort of a new plot device for them. So I thought that was kind of nice. And, and then the resolution at the end with the tidal wave. I think about three-quarters through this, everyone just kind of threw their hands up and said, you know what, um, we have to justify finishing this pilot, but we just don't care anymore, I, I think is what happened. Because even the ending, I mean, it's so ludicrous, the, the the terror the city's under, and it's like three people running past the camera, and that's supposed to represent the whole town in terror. And then when she stops the tidal wave, she, she just looks at it, closes her eyes for a second, and then it's frozen. There, there's clearly no strain or effort on Ice's part whatsoever when she freezes this, you know, four-story tall tidal wave that's about to crash on the city. It's like, oh, that was easy. What? It, it, it makes no sense. Well, actually, you know, that's that's a good point because there is no strain on anybody. There's, right. there's a there's a part where fire is. I guess it's supposed to be fire. It doesn't really look like it in the in the pilot itself, but it's supposed to be fire around a cyclone or something like that to get rid of it. Or was it the no? It that's the, the flash, hailstorm. The flash spun yeah. around a, a hurricane to get rid of it. Right, right, right. No, she was she was uh, trying to melt a, a hailstorm. I yes, guess. yes. But she's just kind of floating there with her hands out, yeah. kind of like, going, okay, well, you know, this is what I'm doing right now. You know, it doesn't nothing seems hard. And and at at the end of things, they kind of go like they're they're kind of like, well, I I guess we should go get a cup of coffee. You know. <laughs> it didn't, there's no. It, it doesn't feel like there's any stakes in this plot. Yeah, I, there was no tension and, and no stakes. That's a good way to put it. 
I, the, the the fact that Green Lantern, you know, once once uh, Miguel Ferrer throws his weather, you know, briefcase off the tower, he's just like, yeah, I can't stop it. He just, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> dude, you got a freaking power ring. I mean, where's the super friends got my power ring will stop this tidal wave. You know, I mean, like, yeah. come on, dude, freaking at least try, you know, <laughs> make a giant catcher's mitt, something. Right. <laughs> right. Well, on top of that, I was noticing it, it, the, the third time I watched, uh, you know, while Green Lantern is doing that, facing off against the weatherman, and he does arrest him, so that's something in, in Green Lantern's favor. Uh, Flash is saving some kids. Fire and Adam are literally flying around the town. They do nothing but smile at the camera. That is all they do in the final battle. That's it. So clearly they weren't. They didn't care what the characters ended up doing in this thing. Ugh. Don't, don't they actually literally say at the end, oh, well, I guess it's over? Um, that was actually halfway through the movie when they, they saved the city from the hailstorm or whatever. That's when they're like, oh, okay. oh, nothing left to do. Let's go home. Yeah, but it was <laughs> it was quite literally like, okay, we're done. Oh, man. So let's talk about sort of uh, more of the production, you know, like the, the faux interviews, for example. So we've all ad- acknowledged here that we think there's two different versions floating out there. Uh, the version that has the faux interviews, the version that doesn't. The script doesn't have – we have a copy of the script, thanks to our good friend, Zoom Yukonori, and the mockumentary interviews are not in the script, and that's labeled final version from February 1997 or March 1997, I think. Either way, those aren't in there. So clearly those happened later, and uh, we, we think we know why, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But uh, the Rob and I have already expressed our love for the, for the faux interviews. What did you guys think, uh, Max? What did you think of the faux interviews? I, I think they helped. Um, I guess when you read the script, it comes across a little heavier, maybe. Or at least maybe that's the way I read it. And But then when you see the actual pilot, and especially with the interstitials, they have already kind of established this rapport mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily come through in the pilot itself. So I think those interstitials kind of help emphasize that more. You know, because with the interstitials, then everything is kind of being told in flashback, and you already—I think you already know that ICE is a member of, of the JLA, which you know. That's how it starts off of, the first line of the thing. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so goodbye to that tension. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting to see how they interact with each because there are some where they they're interviewed solo, but they're also interviewed together, and and that I think made them more endearing as characters than if it had just gone through with the pilot on its own. That's fair, Chris. Yeah, I definitely you know have. Having seen this without it and and now seen it with, it definitely helps. Apparently, it didn't help enough to get it ordered as a series. <laughs> but I agree with Max. I think because the final product is it's it's not anything that's that anybody's going to say now. Here's here's a superhero you know production of superhero tra- you know adaptation for you. They're not going to hold it up to any you know as any standard. I think the videos, the little the interviews, they actually like like Max said, they lighten that load. They make it seem like okay, this is a little more of a lighthearted thing. So you know you you don't have to take this as seriously. It's we're having fun. So don't pay attention to the ropey special effects and the horrible costumes because we're having fun. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and the actors actually come across, as, especially uh, Kim Oja and uh, uh, Kassir, come across as pretty charming in, in the interviews and in their chemistry works. And so I, I think it helps us aid a lot. You know, I do have a question for you guys as yep. far as what we're talking about here. Why do you think they decided to go in a more comedic route instead of something more straightforward? Well, I think they were leaning on the JLI effort and they were leaning on the Friends template, I think is what they were going for. I agree with the Friends idea, but I mean, would anyone have known what the JLI was at that point? No, good point. I think, that, okay, let me back that up. I think they were looking for a Friends superhero show, and so they leaned on mm-hmm. the JLI format. That's another mm-hmm. way to put it. If, if I remember right, I think I think Rob might be on to something, because if I remember right, you know, it, it, you 
remember Comic Scene Magazine? Oh, they yeah. had the, oh, the yeah. listing of all the in, uh, you know, the in progress or in development comic book to film to movie uh, productions at the time. And I, if I remember right, there was a Justice League TV series listed in in Comic Scene, and somebody like Michael Bailey can probably look this up and tell us. But somebody, somebody was writing some, the comment. Okay, okay, <laughs> that, that it listed that, and and it wouldn't, you know, being when it like it was probably in development during the Bwahaha era of the JLI and it just kept getting you know in development hell for years and years and then along came Friends and it's like hey we can you know take these two tastes that will probably taste great together and combine them and and, and then you get the pitch that actually gets it into production like Rob said so that's probably why it had some humor to begin with because of the JLI and then they you know grafted it onto a Friends alike TV show. That's how you get Barry Triviani. Now, the only thing I wanted to add about the phone interviews is that, you know, we live in a post office in park and rec world where we're used to TV shows cutting aside real quickly and having these little interviews with people. And at this point, 1997, that, as far as, unless I'm mistaken, wasn't really a a style utilized in fictional shows. It was used a lot in reality TV at this point. Because what it makes me think of these interstitials is actually, if you put it in context in 1997, is the real world. MTV's the real world. Because, you know, they would have a crazy scene and then they cut to the interview with the, the, the house member of the real world afterwards, like, or whatever, in this reality show style. So I really think they were leaning on the reality show aspect to get these things. And if this show had gone on and, and been successful, heaven forbid, it would have actually hit that whole formula of the interviews four years before The Office ever made it on the air in England. So how crazy would it have been if people thought The Office was a response to Justice League? Crazy. <laughs> well, you know, but that, that's a good point. That is a good point. But I also get a real, and I'm showing my age here, but this is a real, I get a Misfits of Science vibe from it too. Oh, I thought about that too. <laughs> yeah. Let's get to the biggest issue I think that people want to really dig into, and I've already dipped my toe a little bit, is the costumes. So first off, when the version you watch in Daily Motion, the credits are cut off at the end. So I was trying to figure out who did the costumes. I went to IMDb. There's nothing there. But then I relied on this version, Zoom, you can already provide me, the DVD, and the credits are on there. And Betty, Pika, Madden, you have a lot to answer for, ma'am. You really, really do. (laughs) And I can see why she didn't list this one. She probably removed herself when someone added her to IMDb, I'm sure, so that she didn't have to get revealed as being part of the costumes. I don't really want to go costume by costume, but let's just get into this and you guys throw your thoughts out there. Rob, why don't we start off with you? What are your, anything you want to talk about with these costumes? I, well, I mean, I can't. I don't think I can blame Miss Madden. I mean, I think it's clear that they had no money, and there are just some things you can't do unless you have the budget to do them. Um, so I, I don't. I think she probably did as good a job as she probably could, but I bet that they just had absolutely no money for these costumes, and so she had to jerry rig stuff. Uh, I mean, Fire's costume doesn't make any sense because she just puts eye makeup on under her eyes, and like that. Supposedly, that's her costume. Hey, it works for Arrow. Uh, years later i yeah i guess so we'll talk about this at and when we sum up but to, the reason why i i don't hate this pilot is because i just think that it they just didn't have the resources and that's not the fault of the filmmakers now yeah you need to judge the final result but i just i think everybody in there was probably in there pitching really hard and they just had no money to spend and i think that's the difficult part so i mean so, clearly some of the costumes uh i think they spent some more money on like martian manhunter and fly 
clash and then they didn't have any money left and they're like uh adam get get some get some football gear from the first and 10 locker room show over there and put that on adam <laughs> and things like that so uh, you know so i don't i don't hate the costumes even though they're obviously not very good chris what do you think yeah when the legends of the superheroes outdo you uh <laughs> you know then you do you know you're in trouble because i mean those costumes <laughs> that though that show had absolute those shows had absolutely no budget too and that was that was a good 10 years earlier that's a fair and point that hawk man it's pretty boss in that joke that's actually 20, 20 years, years earlier. earlier sorry 20 years earlier yeah good 20 years earlier yeah sorry i stumbled there but yeah and, and i mean flash and green lantern look a hell of a sight better on that than they do here and there's and in that show he's called the weather wizard yeah the weather wizard's <laughs> there he looks like the weather wizard exactly yeah and and uh yeah there's actually quite a few characters that are in both and including the atom the atom's on there too and i, I know this is it, this is low budget and and i agree that you know if you're not gonna you know i think it's kind of funny though that rob's being very generous to this but he won't cover superman 4 with me on superman movie minute but you know it's a- <laughs> <laughs> that, you are compared the new man is a Chris. bridge too far hold on wait stop the show chris <laughs> You are comparing apples and the Holocaust. That is what you're doing. Oh, Oh, man. Whoa. But no. Wow. This is real dark. But 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 again, Shag brought up the Saturday Night Live skits, uh, the skit with the famous skit, you know, Margot Kidder, Superman movie minutes. Margot Kidder was on Saturday Night Live. They did the famous superhero skit with Ackroyd as the Flash. Some of those costumes turned off on the Superman 50th anniversary special that Rob knows is a just. I'm, I'm still in therapy over that. Uh, I, I don't know how to deal with that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, but they look better too. It's just like, oh my God, there was there. How hard is it to make a you know make a cost, superhero costume that does look like crap. I mean, hey, weather man, I is Ant Man. I have the powers <laughs> of an ant. <laughs> Just to follow that up, I mean, you talk about not having any money. Look at what cosplayers can do. You know, even yes. even twenty years ago, what cosplayers could do compared to these things. Right. But yes. uh, all, all right, I don't want to go too deep into this. But a cosplayer is making one costume and has who knows how much time. This poor woman probably had to make like what six suits in who knows knows how long a time so again i i again, they're not good they're not good don't get me wrong no you're I an did. apologist you're a justice league of america <laughs> apologist right. clearly okay all right, all all right. Man, i gotta say that that fire costume she probably knocked out uh, that out in an afternoon yeah that- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah okay we say that but uh, you know compliments to michelle heard she pulls it off i'm sorry i think she looks great while it doesn't look like i would imagine fire she makes that costume work physically just she's, she's got the presence to do it yeah, yeah, but you know she she needs a pair of ice skates to finish it off. I mean, it's well, it's ice, not great. Ice absolutely <laughs> looks like ice capades in her outfit. No doubt about that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I just want to point out, and it's something that I kept trying to remind myself is that this was 1997, and I, we've gotten very spoiled, I think, now with how costumes look, even though they all tend to look like tactical gear of some, of one word, of one sort or another, but. One thing I never understood, especially with with TV shows, and I think uh, the CW show started to kind of cotton to this at some point. But, you know, what's wrong with just making a costume made out of spandex? Why why do you have to put shoulder pads and heavy helmets on everything? And, you know, the everyone's mask is is ostensibly supposed to be like a domino mask, but they are these heavy plastic 
things that are obviously glued to their face. And it made me think, you know, I think Steel came out this same year, you said? Yep. Right? And Batman and, and looks, Robin. Yeah. And it looks very much like that Steel kind of, of you know, appliance that's just plastered on someone's face. Uh, especially with the, with the Flash. It doesn't do him any favors because he looks kind of like Caveman Flash. It's just yeah. this, heavy, yeah. this heavy brow. And it just, it you know... And it makes it makes uh, the Adam, you know, who looks like, he looks like one of the guards from from Ming's castle in Flash Gordon. <laughs> he, he, the, the, the actor himself is not very tall or, you know, he's not broad shouldered. You know, he's not that that typical hero body image. But the the costume makes him look even dumpier. It makes him look shorter and stockier and it, it doesn't compliment anyone. And like you said, I think the only one who really comes off looking all right is fire because you know essentially she's wearing leather pants and a spandex top and you know and sometimes less is more going back you know to what you said about spandex max it's not quite spandex but when they did brandon routh as superman on the crisis crossover recently mm-hmm. he had the most you know traditional looking costume and he was the best looking freaking superhero in that whole damn it, thing it looked it looked great it looked great he yeah looked fantastic yeah he looked better than he did in superman returns <laughs> yeah well, I think the Flash is mostly wearing spandex, except for the mask appliance and the lightning bolt stuff. And that even comes off looking terrible. So I, I actually think that Guy Gardner is the one that has the best looking costume. Now, I'm biased because I like Guy's costume and I, in, in the comics, and I like Kyle Rayner's costume. And that's really what that is. It's an amalgam of those two costumes. So I, I like Guy's, even though it's freaking blue when it should be green. <laughs> but the rest of it, yeah, they're, they're pretty much terrible. The male costumes are all very bulky to specifically hide the physique. Again, Flash is a bit of an exception, whereas the female costumes are very, very tight, trying to show everything off, which I guess is of the style. But, you know, there was, someone said a minute ago, the defense of, you know, it's 1997. Well, guys, but also, you know, Lois and Clark was on the air. Uh, all these other shows have been produced and made decent-looking costumes. I, I don't think you can blame the time. I think it comes down to either the money or just some mistakes on the costume designer's part. Now, mm. I will give her some credit, though, too, because she did movies like Beastmaster, which is great. She's very well-renowned for doing the Michael Jackson Moonwalker production, which included Smooth Criminal uh, uh, music video, where he looks like a gangster. He looks great in that. She did the Girls Just Want to Have Fun movie. She did a whole bunch. And in fact, in 2018, the Costume Designers Guild uh, bestowed a Distinguished Service Award to her. And I think if she had had this movie on her IMDb page, that would have brought that whole uh, award ceremony to to an end, I think, pretty much. Um, (laughs) In fact, she was pretty active from 1982 all the way to 1997. And oddly enough, coincidentally perhaps, her career really slowed down after 1997. So I'm not going to say it's this production's fault, but I think it's kind of this production's fault. It's cursed. Um, all right, special effects. If anyone's got any comments on special effects, I do want to say before anyone tries to tell me it was 1997, I'm sorry, people. By 1997, Star Trek Next Generation was on TV, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, X-Files, there was a new Doctor Who in 1996, Babylon 5, Flash, Lois and Clark, Superboy, special effects. That is not 1997's fault whatsoever, if that's what you're going to say. Anybody got special effects comments? <laughs> they are they are below what every every production you mentioned, even the Superboy TV series, which could have some pretty ropey effects at times. And it was a syndicated TV show; it didn't have a network backing it. Yeah, they're just they're pretty they're pretty bad. Yeah, <laughs> I have a few compliments. When ice freezes stuff, I thought that was actually done pretty well. Uh, like mm-hmm. when suddenly you see ice crystals form on stuff, the glass turns to ice. You know, I, th- I thought that was actually surprisingly done well. And I like when uh, Ray the Atom shrinks; how physically he turns into 
into like almost like triangles and they drop. I thought that looked pretty cool. The scenes where he's tiny are redunculous. They make the Misfits of Science scenes where uh, L was small look like high caliber, but the actual shrieking effect itself was pretty good. The scene where he limbos under that door thing made me maybe want to pick my computer up and throw it out the window. <laughs> that was that was almost my bohaha award, by the way. Came real close. That that joke. I I am generally very positive. Not very positive. I'm generally more forgiving of this than most people. But that moment is un unforgivable. <laughs> yeah. That- and the bad part is he's like tucks ducks his head under and back several times before yes! he even limbo. Yeah. Like, no. yeah. He even extends this. And I'm a dad, but he extends this awful dad joke into just, yeah, it's it's really bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will give a little bit of compliment to the Green Lantern constructs. The ones they showed were, were fairly okay. It's as nice as I can be. They're fairly okay. They, they looked somewhat believable. The problem was none of the constructs went big enough or impressive enough. They were all mm-hmm. little tiny things. Like he makes a little tiny green rope or he makes a key or he makes an umbrella. He never made anything big and impressive and like wow factor. So that, that's, the, that's the failing of that. I think the ones they did create looked kind of okay. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, the the Green Lantern stuff looked better than I thought it would. Um, but yeah, but it was it was all just little stuff. And, you know, that's not what you come to Green Lantern for. You want giant pitcher's mitts and fly swatters and that sort of thing. You know, not not a ring of keys. Yeah. And the Weatherman, all his, all the weather stuff looked terrible. I, I'm pretty sure the hail was was giant wads of paper being thrown down from, <laughs> from somewhere. You know, it, it's just again, it's a pilot. You know, they they put their money in some things, and other things had to suffer for it. You know, and, and you know what? Now that we say all these, I think if this show was going to get picked up, I think it would—they would have made them refilm the pilot. I don't think CBS mm. would have been willing to air this if they had enough confidence in the cast or the story or something. I think they would have said, "Okay, you've got a germ of something here. Go start from scratch because it's just that bad." Sorry, Rob, you're wrong. But <laughs> second pilot like Star Trek, right? Exactly. That's what I was thinking of. Yep. <laughs> but this is not the cage. Call this uh, the. This, uh, the this is the wagon train to the dumpster. Is what this is right here. <laughs> oh God! Wow. Jeez, Jack. <laughs> All right, just going through some of the cast and crew here. The writers are credited Lauren Cameron and David Hosselton, and then Scott Shepard, who was uncredited. But Lauren Cameron and David Hosselton actually went on to do quite... I mean, you look at this, and then you see where they went. They worked on Disney's Brother Bear. They're responsible for the Over the Hedge franchise. They worked on Handy Manny. They worked on House MD. I mean, they went on to do some pretty successful stuff. And um, I don't know if it's humble beginnings, but it's certainly they got a lot better. Let's put it that way. There's an Over the Hedge franchise? Oh, they made a bunch of those movies. Well, okay. They made at least two of those movies. <laughs> wow. Okay. I didn't even know that. When you have kids, you lose yeah. these things. <laughs> then in, in the music department, this one this one just blew my mind. And, and no one's going to care about this but me. So the music in the film. Because, you know, all these things have to have some sort of score or whatever, right? Well, first of all, the music in this really isn't that impressive. It sounds a lot like sort of like Christmas music. A lot, especially during like when she's getting inducted to the Justice League. That sounds absolutely like Christmas music. And then uh, most other scenes, it sounds like goofy clown music because there's some kind of gimmick they're trying to point home that's funny. Like, so I was totally underwhelmed with the music. And then I looked at the credits. John Debney did it, which blew me away because this is 1997. The year before this, he did the soundtrack to the Doctor Who TV movie that was on Fox, which that soundtrack, as far as I'm concerned, is like one of my favorite Doctor Who soundtracks. It's really phenomenal. So to see that he did this, you know, the Doctor Who thing a year before and then did this... 
I almost wonder if they already knew the pilot wasn't going anywhere, and they said, hey, John, uh, we have to finish it. If we give you 20 bucks, can you knock something out for us? Because it's just not that good. And, and the guy is a great musician, and he's worked with Steven Spielberg and Mike Post, and he did Star Trek Next Generation and Tiny Toons and Sequest, and he really get, later on became big for like Liar Liar and Iron Man 2, and he's just done tons and tons of stuff. He actually has Emmys and nominated for Academy Awards. Great music. Not on this. Then uh, as far as directors go, you've got Felix Enrique... Oh, no, I'm sorry. How do you say that? Enriquez? That did allow me. Yes. Felix Enriquez Alcala. Thank you very much, Actually, Max. Alcala. I, I was going to take a crack <laughs> at that, and I did not edit out all the times I said it wrong. That absolutely did not happen. Um, so he is the director of the film. Now, there was a second director, a Louis Teague, who is uncredited. Chris, you had some thoughts on Louis Teague's. Yeah, on IMDb it says, you can look this this pile up on IMDb, and it actually says he was brought in to salvage this pilot. Uh, Louis Teague directed movies like Cujo and The Jewel of the Nile and Cat's Eye and Navy Seals. So he actually you know, directed some, some pretty successful films they brought him in to try to fix this and as far as we can tell he probably directed the the video interviews the fourth wall breaking scenes that we all agree or really helped this but apparently didn't help it well enough to sell and he was so still not happy with it he asked not to receive credit for the film <laughs> <laughs> Now, uh, the other director actually did a lot of stuff. He did Lois and Clark. He did some Earth 2. He did some BSG and Stargate Universe and ER, all kinds of stuff. So he went on to a lot of stuff. So as far as the script goes, I do want to mention a couple things. Now, Zoom Yukonori, as we mentioned, who's uh, sadly no longer with us, is a great friend of the network. And he loved this pilot, folks. And he had a copy of the uh, of the quote-unquote final script, which is still before we think uh, Louis T got his hands on it. And Zoom went through the script and compared it to the final product and identified something like I don't know, 970 points of variance between the script and the final version. Such a Zoom thing to do. <laughs> so we we had to take a moment to just give some credit to those script differences that Zoom noted, because they're really quite interesting. I'll read out a couple myself. I mean, we've got tons here, folks. I'm not going to read them all. But like, for example, in um, Scene 77, you know, Scene 77, they were going to show when Flash goes chasing after who everyone thought was the bad guy, Arliss Popke, but he's not. Uh, there was going to be a scene where a motorcycle cop has a radar gun and catches the flash zooming by and he's like wondering what was that which is great which is just a classic speedster gag and I kind of wish they'd thrown it in there because that would have been fun but I, I get why they may have had to cut it and then the scene I really wish they had kept was in scene 113 which was a deleted scene which involved uh, BB which is fire talking to Tori they're in the middle of this ice montage where ice is training they were going to take a break and Tori was going to take BB shopping to sort of uh, relax a bit and if you read the scene it's kind of nice that actually gives a chance to hear fire's take and, and ice take on all the other members of the Justice League. So it gives you, it's a, it's a personality building moment. So I think that scene would have been better served to be left in. Yeah, uh, a scene that didn't make it into the final pilot was scene 60. Uh, when the their heroes arrive at the fundraiser in a, in a clunker, in a, you know, just a beat up POS car. <laughs> and, and with all the other uh, posh cars around it. Um, I'm, I'm glad they kind of dropped that because I think we already get the lovable loser vibe enough. We didn't need to see – we didn't need to see their, their crap car on top of that. <laughs> um, later on in scenes 91 through 95, there's a deleted sequence of the, the Justice League and uh, Tori going to the Eno Institute to arrest Dr. Eno to find uh, what they think is a weather bomb trap left for them. And the dialogue from scenes 93 and 95 were moved to the end. But I kind of wish they had left this scene in just because it made the, the weatherman a little more of a, of a threat, I think. Mm. 
And like some, I think you were saying, Shag, that, you know, this feels like a young team, like they're still kind of learning. And I think this was a good way to kind of show that this JLA is not infallible. Yeah, the couple things Zoom pointed out, scenes 47, 50, and 67, they have additional scenes where Tori freaks out and ISIS things. And, and scene 50 is actually a deleted daydream. And we see Tori wake up from on screen in scene 51. So they were playing. They were going to get to see more of her. Like we see her ice up her, her dog's bowl instead of the, the glass she's trying to ice up. So we got more of that. Uh, we got a more power ring stuff would have been great. Scene 86 had Guy giving Ray the business by he power ringed a green heart behind Tori as she was talking with Ray. I thought that would have been cute. And got <laughs> us a little little more powering action. And and then there's one where uh, scene 126, uh, this scene really got me when I was watching it. I'm like, come on. Green Lantern picks up a crowbar to try to open the door when they're stuck in their headquarters when the weatherman's like blasting them. And apparently he was supposed to uh, use a powering construct. And Zoom notes this may have been changed to save some effects budget because we know there was none. Uh, so, 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 yeah, that one. And, and then this other one that, that, that jumped out at me because my edit's different. Scene 109 showed that Tori joined the Justice League right after the scene in which the Adam revealed his identity to her. Oh. And that, that scene was appropriately moved to the end of the film. But the original placement explains that Adam is the only one that's unmasked while they swear in. They swear in like Robin style, you know, with Robin's taking the oath in the Batcave. You know, they swear her in into the uh, into the Justice League. And actually, the video version that I've got, uh, the bootleg DVD, he reveals his identity to her at the end, and then we see the swearing in of Ice. Yeah, it's it's kind of strange. There's no scene where they come back to Tori's apartment to convince her to join, so there's no costume reveal or wrap-up with everyone's plot threads. It's straight from Green Lantern catching the weatherman to Adam's heart-to-heart with Tori, his unmasking, then the oath, and then there's also no extra scene with the weatherman showing that he's probably going to escape. So it's very strange. On page eight, apparently Green Lantern is described as having a green mask and cape, which makes uh, made Zoom think that they were also working in a little Alan Scott uh, as well. I mean, so the, I mean, I guess the writers weren't content to mix in Guy Gardner, Hal Jordan, and Kyle Rayner. They also had to throw in Alan Scott. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess at some other point during the script, they worked in uh, Chip and had Green Lantern steal food out of a garbage can or something. I don't know. Jesus. <laughs> and then apparently in scene 114, they had Tori freeze a snow globe better to demonstrate her control of her powers. In the original script, it was a fishbowl complete with a fish. That was like Greenland remarked that he wouldn't want that in his ice cube tray. Uh, but of course, that's kind of cruel. Like, I mean, she, that means she would kill a fish, an innocent, you know, uh, an innocent creature. So I'm glad that they didn't stick with that because that would have been a very discordant note. All right, folks, here we go. We're at the moment you've all been waiting for or feared might actually end up in this episode. We're here to nominate the... Pwahaha Award. This is where we're going to nominate the funniest moment. I put that in air quotes. In the pilot, each of us is going to pick a moment, and only one is going to be awarded the coveted Pwahaha Award. Max, let's start with you. Oh, okay. <laughs> this, this is <laughs> summed it up right there. <laughs> Oof! Wow. Well, this is, it's a tough one because you know the thing is, is it's a it's a cute show. I wouldn't say necessarily it's a funny show, it, and especially not in that same vein necessarily as, as the JLI. But the the moment that I that kind of made me chuckle a little bit was during one of the interstitials when Barry, BB, and 
guy are, are all talking to get when and I don't know why they're like climbing over each other while they're doing this, but they're 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 giving an interview together and they're talking about John and how he's like a father figure and how warm he is and all this all these sort of things. And they're kind of talking over each other because they're so excited about talking about John and then um, Guy could just kind of puts his face out and says, And he's green <laughs> and, for, and, for, and for some reason that made me laugh. I, I think that is also a nod to the fact that some of those were scenes were improved, I think is because it, mm-hmm. it feels very like a natural conversation with people talking over each other. So, all right, that's a good one. All right, Chris, what do you got? Uh, when Tori is introduced to John Jones and he says, you're a first alien, I presume. And she responds, I, I-, I met Leonard Nimoy once. I actually chuckled out loud at that one. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> All right. Rob, what do you got? Uh, Max actually took mine. My favorite moment of the whole pilot is oh, that no. is that scene of the three of them because it does feel very improvised. But I'm good because I, I actually do laugh at the way Green Lantern pops up. Well, you know, he's green. Uh, and, and the way they cut right from that. I think is great but but i'm not i actually don't think that that's improv my uh my hunch is uh that those scenes were added in as as chris talked about by lewis teague to help save it and i'm betting that if that if those scenes came along later in the filming process those actors had had longer time to be around one another Mm. and had started learning each other's rhythms a little which is why i think those scenes feel more naturalistic i think because they've gotten used to each other they're in they're in clothes they're not in those weird hinky blue lantern costumes and so that's why i think those scenes have a nice fresh feel to them and we didn't talk about this when we when we discussed the the interstitials but like there is no other superhero comic book live action adaptation that has that this is unique to the justice league pilot there is no other movie that features or tv show that features the characters the superheroes doing that and i i actually find that very refreshing hmm. well i think the cw's tried to capture not with the interstitials but some of that casual banter where you get in the big uh, annual crossovers there's always a moment or two where like barry and and oliver are joking together off in the corner so it feels like their own little special moment but you're right but they're not breaking the fourth wall yeah exactly right exactly yeah Hmm, interesting well mine was also in one of the interstitials now i'll tell you some of the ones i was considering you know like like the wally eating was kind of funny uh i liked when ray was inside the tv and he gets zapped i don't actually like that but what i like is afterwards when the tv repairman there is there and ray is just charred he's just got black scorch marks all over I thought that was funny I liked the ice training with her powers montage where all the JLA is really really cold that was cute I like when Marshman Hunter's in the, the shape of fire and he's talking to BB and he's walking away and just casually says doesn't this thing chafe your thighs I just thought hearing David Ogden Styers deliver that line was just great but the moment I picked was when Ray in the interstitial was talking about his powers and how when he would shrink and grow and they didn't know not all his body parts grew at the same time and sometimes he would grow big and his vocal cords were still small so he would sound all squishy like this and he did that bit and that genuinely made me laugh out loud however we have two people that have nominated guy gardner with the and he's green comment so that has to go to guy gardner so congratulations congratulations guy gardner you have won the bwahaha award it is as tangible as the laughter we give you so, folks, that's it. We did it. We got through it. We almost survived. So why don't you tell the folks at home where we can hear more of you? Are you nice folks? Well, okay. Max, Chris uh, are the nice ones. Um, find more of you in the interwebs. Max, where can people hear you? Uh, people can hear me right here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network at Plasticast and also the literary podcast, The Mirror Factory. And when's the next Plasticast coming out? Very soon. <laughs> Good answer. I- <laughs> 
I promise, very soon. Chris, where can they hear you? Uh, they can hear me on the network, on Firewater Podcast Network, on JLUcast. As I mentioned before, we cover the Justice League animated series the from the DC Animated Universe that has Martian Manhunter, uh, John Jones as one of the regular cast members, and a Green Lantern, that's John Stewart, that they didn't put him in any of this. But uh, <laughs> and, and a Flash that's definitely Wally West, not Barry Allen. I also do uh, Superman Movie Minute, as I mentioned, with Rob, and Batman Nightcast with our pal Ryan daily and a few other shows that are on the network as well and you can go back to jli number five episode and you can hear chris on that very episode that's right and then rob kelly my podcasting life mate my brother in arms for nine years running oh my lord where can they hear you sir well you know like how they do in government where they say i give my minutes to the senate of them the great state of tennessee i am going to forego myself plugs and deliver one little comment i want to say about the jla pilot which we still didn't manage to get into in the last two hours oh my god <laughs> the reason reason I don't hate this thing, yes, it is not good by any stretch of the imagination, even by 1997 standard, it is not good. But the reason I don't hate it is because I don't think it's cynical. I think they're actually trying to make something good. They just failed. And there's something noble about that. I think the reason why Batman and Robin is junk is because to me, it's cynical. Uh, I think the reason I hate Superman 4 is because I think it's cynical. This, I don't believe is cynical. They failed. The costumes look cruddy. Special effects are cruddy. The plot is not very good, but I actually think that the people that made this actually liked the characters and liked superheroes and tried to do a good job. They just didn't do a great job at it. But that's the reason why I don't hate it. It's the same reason why I don't hate the Roger Corman Fantastic Four. It's They just they just didn't have the resources to pull it off, but I don't think it's a cynical attempt at making this. And so that's why I have never hated this pilot, even though it is not very good. Well, just I just want to say I, I agree. I, it's, it's not a good pilot, but I don't hate it either. And I, I think there's a lot to work with here. I think there was the potential for a good JLA show in there. I got to you know agree with the guys here. It's hearts in the right place. It's trying. I think you know had it gone to series, you know I, I agree with Shag too. They probably would have never aired this, <laughs> or if they had, they would even retooled it even further to, to air it. Especially pumped up the special effects and and maybe gave it a, a little bit bigger budget per episode or something. But yeah, it's definitely something that is is trying to. It's it's just having fun, but it's not having fun at the expense of the characters. It's it's not making fun of superheroes. It's just saying, hey, superheroes are people too, and they have, you know, the everyday problems. I mean, it's in a way, it's a lot like the early Marvel approach, right? But it's just more geared into a sitcom vein a la Friends. And because of that, I can't I can't really hate it either. Yeah, it's not a bad way to go. It just wasn't executed properly. I would say, objectively, the pilot is bad. However, it is not the fault of the actors. It is not the fault of some of the ideas in it. It, it, it ultimately falls down on the script and the money involved for which where you get the special effects and the costume from. What Where this pilot succeeds, and, and I really do feel a lot better towards this pilot once I found out about the Friends connection. Once I realized it is a, an attempt to make Friends, it actually endeared me to it more. But I would say where it succeeds is the same way the JLI comic succeeds. The JLI comic succeeds not in the big superhero battle. 
battles. The JLI comic succeeds in the moments in between the battles, when it's the characters hanging around the embassy, sniping at each other. That's where it's its best. That's where it's funniest. Moving Day, you know, someone brought it up earlier. That's where the series, the comic succeeds, and where this succeeds is the interstitials, where the characters are just hanging out and talking, or the moments where they're, they're bickering about something, and they're in their plain, very 90s clothes that don't look ridiculous, and that's where it succeeds. So I, I gotta give it credit in that realm. I, I don't love the pilot, but I do like that aspect of it. So, thank you, Rob, for uh, making us say something nice at the end. I think that was uh, very, very well done, sir, and I think that was very appropriate, and the pilot does deserve some level of people's love. That's fair. Thank you. <laughs> Alright, folks, we'll come back next episode for another sidestep into JLI history. We're going to look at the darker side of DC Comics and some of the JLI appearances in books that would eventually become the backbone of the Vertigo imprint. And we'll have a few more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. You know how this works. You're just going to have to find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. I'm Max. And I'm Chris. And I'm Rob. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? it? He's from another world. Yeah. He's he, world. he has knowledge. I mean, I mean, he has knowledge that surpasses the suppressive ideals of humanity. Well, and, and but also, I mean, also he's very wise, you know, about uh, you know fathering, you know, fathering us, fathering exactly. issues, and, and you know, human instincts and stuff. I get a right. lot from him. You know, I really feel. You know, haven't you felt like you appreciate more of the things that we have for us here in this in our world? And you know, he's more green. Of a civilian. <laughs>